0: Holiday House Books for Young Readers, Peachtree Publishing Company, and Pixel and Inc. present Jonathan Case, author of Little Monarchs, and Michael Beal, author of The Swallowtail Legacy. In conversation with Associate Marketing Manager for Trade, Alison Tarnowski. I'm
1: Alison Tarnofsky in the Trade Marketing Department at Holiday House Publishing. Imagine that you are a 10-year-old tasked with the mission of saving humanity from extinction. It's been 50 years since the sun shift wiped out nearly all mammal life across the earth and Elvie and her caretaker Flora, a biologist are the only two humans who can survive daylight because Flora made an incredible discovery, a way to make an antidote to sun sickness using the scales from monarch butterfly wings. Free to travel during the day, Elvie and Flora follow monarchs as they migrate across the former Western United States constantly making new medicine for themselves while trying to find a way to make a vaccine, they can share with everyone. This is the story of Little Monarchs. Now imagine that you are a 12-year-old who has discovered in an age-old mystery. Lark Heron Finch is spending the summer on Swallowtail Island off the shores of Lake Erie. When Nadine, a close family friend, tells Lark about a tragic boat accident that happened off the coast many years before, Lark's enthralled with the story. Nadine's working on a book about Swallowtail's oldest resident who had a connection to the crash, and she's sure that the accident was not as it appeared. Impressed by Lark's keen eye, she hires her as a research assistant for the summer. Soon, Lark discovers something that could change life as she knows it. Welcome to the Swallowtail legacy. Today for the guest book podcast, authors Jonathan Case and Michael Beal Join me to discuss their new books, Little Monarchs, and The Swallowtail Legacy, Wreck at Ada's Reef. Jonathan Case is an Eisner Award-winning cartoonist whose works include Dear Creature, The New Deal, Batman 66, and two volumes of Over the Garden Wall. He lives in Oregon with his family. Edgar Award-nominated author Michael Beale is the author of the Red Blazer Girls series, Summer at Forsaken Lake, Lantern Sam and the Blue Streak Bandits, and Agents of the Glass, A New Recruit. He lives in Portugal with his wife and their two cats. Jonathan and Michael, welcome to the Guest Book Podcast.
2: Thank you, Alison. Good to be here. Thanks very much. Yeah, excited to uh, share a little time with you today.
1: So both books have strong female protagonists who really develop a sense of their agency and independence in their lives. Can you both speak to that? And and also, why did you choose to write for this kind of audience? Um, Let's start with Jonathan.
2: I was about to become a dad about 12 years ago. That's when I started working on the concepts for Little Monarchs. It's the sort of book where it started out as a book that I thought I, I really want to. Honestly, I was just nervous. I was nervous about becoming a dad, and I didn't think that I had a lot of the practical skills that dads need uh, that or just that parents need. Uh, so I thought I got to get my head out of my office, out of my kind of just fantasy imagination space and get a little bit more comfortable with having real adventures in the real world. And I thought that if I could do that, then maybe I'd be a little bit better set up to be a good parent. And so LV, my character, is, I guess, the ideal child as I could imagine a child. Like, oh, if I if I were raising a kid, what would I want them to feel and be? And, you know, how would I want them to engage with the world? And so she's, she's sort of the vessel for that. And I wanted a character that was able to explore the world with a greater degree of freedom than you typically uh, see kids having. I mean, uh, in all these kind of post-apocalyptic or dystopian things, there's there's usually a moment or two where the characters just get to kind of breathe and be and explore. And I wanted more of that. I wanted um, the book to be kind of focused on that uh, rather than some like giant war or, <laughs> you know, uh, so it's a little bit more intimate. Uh, there's still a lot of adventure and man versus man, man versus nature uh, stuff in there. But uh, I-, I wanted a character that would be able to do all of that, kind of lo- looking into the little details of the world and being fascinated by it.
1: Yeah. And what about you, Michael?
2: Yeah, um, I've, yeah, I've written a couple of blog posts. A lot
0: of people have asked about Lark and the whole like how she evolved. And it was a, a different kind of um, beginning for me. It was I had written um, seven books in about seven years, and I was really ready to try something a little different. And I had my heart set on writing. A, I was going to write a YA novel instead of a middle grade book. And um, and so I started writing this book that had this character named Lark, but she was older. She was like in her 20s and out of college. Um, And the the premise was that she was returning to Swallowtail Island where she had grown up and she had moved away after like a series of tragedies. And then there were all these like flashbacks to when she was 12 and it was going along great. And then I I did this writer's workshop at Yale and basically everybody in the workshop hated the old Lark, the, the older version of her. So I was like, All right, maybe I'm just maybe I should just turn this into a middle grade book and and just stick with my 12 year old Lark. And that's really what I did. I started just kind of revising it and and went with, you know, I guess I went with my strength in this case. Um, and so, you know, as, as you were describing a little bit uh, you know, about the book, when when the book starts, she's at this really at this turning point in her life. She's just turned 12. Her mom has recently died. Her dad died long ago when she was very young, and so she and her sister are arriving at Swallowtail Island with their stepfather and his three sons, and so she's still struggling with you know, these recent events. She's kicked off a soccer team at her school. You know, and she's even by her own admission she's not the easiest person to live with, and you know now, on top of all that, she's being taken away from you know her friends in Connecticut, and she's going to spend this summer on this island in Lake Erie of all places so yeah you know, but but it's a, it is this chance for her to reset, and so she immediately gets involved in this mystery um. But then, you know, like as for like how she starts to kind of regain control, which I guess that's kind of the original question, um, <laughs> it's, it's, um, you know, it's lots of little things. I mean, part of it is that, you know, she starts becoming aware that she's not the only person in the world who's ever had a tragedy, who's ever had, you know, suffering. And, you know, she's, you know, connecting with her, with her stepfather and with her stepbrothers and um, and there's a couple of older people on the island that she connects with, too, and realizes that, you know, man, these people have gone through some things that, you know, I've never even imagined, you know, in my 12 years. And um, but it's just like, you know, for just as a, a quick example, I think there's a there's a moment early on in the book when she she and her stepfather are in the same room and it's full of memories of, of her mother and his wife who's recently died. And, you know, when she realizes what he's going through, this is a big moment for her. You know, it's kind of this first moment of, you know, empathy for someone else. And so that's just kind of the beginning of her, her evolution and her, you know, kind of growing up in a sense.
1: Okay. Yeah. So, Pivoting a slightly here to the the settings of the book. Um, so b- both books are set in in the natural world in com- completely different ways. But I I know Jonathan, you you did extensive research for this this book, and I would I would love to hear a little bit about you know wh- where you even where does someone even start with that? I mean, you're following the entire monarch migration. I, I mean, like where do you do you start at the beginning? Where did I really
0: want to hear this too. Yeah. <laughs>
1: it's,
0: fascinating. It's, like,
1: yeah. it's, it's, it's so overwhelming to me and you do it with such, you know, grace and it's just so lovely. I just like, where, where do you even start?
2: Well, it was definitely a process of years and a lot of travel. Some whole trips were thrown out as, as far as the research that I gathered. Um, the initial concept for the book was that I wanted to go out into the world, photograph and take reference uh, of real places, and then only have the the story happen in these real places, like point by geographical point, you would progress uh, through these environments that I would tag with coordinates and that sort of thing. So that if you wanted to discover these places yourself, you, you could, um, so the monarch migration was something that called to me. It was, it was just a natural way for me to to go out and start exploring some new territory. And I live in Oregon, so I'm sort of towards the northern range of where they go. They go about as far as, you know, southern Canada. And they end up going as far south as Mexico. Uh, Michoacan is in uh it's kind of in the middle of mexico so that's a journey of about three thousand miles that they'd make on the east side of the rocky mountains now we have the western migration on uh, our side of the rocky mountains that kind of goes from canada down to california and, and the northern coast of mexico um so i had these things that i had to work out as i was writing i had to figure out okay I'm traveling around, I'm finding these interesting places, but I also have the story to tell and I have to make everything kind of match up just right, like a puzzle. If I'm, I'm with my characters out in the middle of kind of a boring location because I'm trying to follow the logic of geography, uh, how do I fit this story point in? You know, it was it was a little bit tricky that way, but it was also... Invigorating and it was it was an interesting challenge. Um, I partnered a little bit with a naturalist uh, or a preservation organization called the Xerxes Society, and they are forerunners in um, they're at the forefront of invertebrate preservation uh, pollinator preservation. They work with a lot with monarchs, and so they were able to direct me towards uh, an abundance of literature brochures, things that they had already set up around, okay, where are the monarchs going? What time of year are they arriving in their overwintering groves and that sort of thing. So that was very helpful because the internet is a great resource, but to have a few humans to help steer you in the right direction uh, is much better. Um, So that, that was kind of how it all started and evolved. You know, the book became much more saturated with real life details as drafts progressed and art progressed. Um, it just got more and more and more rooted in the natural world. So I think it's better for all of that. I hope it is.
1: Uh, I think so. I mean, and you, you mentioned the art and I mean, I wear a podcast so we can't show you, but this is a graphic novel. I haven't mentioned that. And it is just stunning the detail and the colors. And I mean, it is just It is a work of art. Um, Michael, the way you describe Swallowtail Island, I could picture it in my head. I really felt like I was there. Um, I know you have some maps in the book, but how did you go about creating such a realistic setting? Is this based on something, or did you just completely make up this magical (laughs) island that really yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, after um, after hearing about Jonathan's research, I feel like such a slacker, I mean, because I pretty much just made it all up. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, it really is, it's elements of a bunch of different islands. Um, and it's like a, a weird thing that I've, I've always been kind of nutty about islands. And, you know, I grew up on this lake in Ohio and, you know, for me, like, um, you know, we had a little sailboat and my brothers and I would sail out to these islands on the lake. And, you know, it was always this big adventure where you felt like you, know, you were Champlain or somebody touching, you know, setting foot on this island for the first time or something. And, um, and then, you know, when I got a little older, I, I did a lot of sailing, um, like sailboat racing in the great lakes. And there's a couple of different islands there where you know, spent a lot of time and, um, you know put in bay in in Lake Erie and Mackinac Island up in you know the top of Lake Michigan, and then, um, right after I got married, um, my wife and I were lucky enough to live on Nantucket for a couple of years and that that in fact like that opening scene in the book where lark is arriving at, at swallowtail on the ferry that is really you know that's kind of just plagiarized from my real life of arriving at nantucket that first time on the boat coming around brant point and just seeing you know the island laid out in front of you and it was just like kind of pinching ourselves saying you know this is real we're, we're actually going to live here um and so you know it Brought together pieces of all of those. Um, I liked, you know, like, for example, like Mackinac Island, there's no cars on the island. It's, it's literally there's horses and buggies and things. And I thought, well, that was a great, you know, that kind of fits in with my, I'm a little bit of a Luddite in some ways. And I liked that idea of like the, the no cars and so I thought, you know, having a few horses would be kind of a cool thing. And it fit in with one of the other characters who's crazy about horses. And, um, you know, so it really was just, um, you yeah, know, it's really, I guess it's a, you know, Swallowtail Island is this composite or, you um, uh, I should ask the naturalist here is it is it a compositor or an amalgamation? I'm never sure which one is the right one in that case when you're when it's lots of little pieces stuck together. I think that's really an amalgamation
1: but uh
0: yeah, but swallowtail island is a is is all of those, but ultimately it's just pretty much just a made up place
1: well, it's a made up place and the the next thing I was going to ask you both about is like all the little extras and little fun elements you both have in your books Michael, one thing that um what I was mentioning before how I the study was so realistic, you include these maps in the in the in the book with very detailed points about, you know, this is where this house is and this is where this is I found that really just wonderful and i found myself referring back to it so i'd be like okay if she's on her bike and she's riding here and okay she's going here she's going here so how did you um come up with this you know the, the idea to in- include a map you also include other fun things like letters and transcripts and stuff but the maps specifically yeah. um i find it helpful and also you know just obviously adding to the the realism but um what, who, how did you come up with that idea to include Yeah, that, that? was really
0: one of the, no, thank you. Um, that was really one of the very first things that, um, you know, one of the first things that I did. I really had regretted one of my earlier books, uh, Summer at Forsaken Lake. Um, I really regretted not including a map in that book. And then, so when I really started seriously outlining um, Swallowtail Legacy, I, I the, one of the first things I did was I drew a picture Um, of the island. And, you know, so this is where Lark's house is. And this is where this, you know, where this reef where this wreck happened. And it was really, it was amazingly how how helpful it was for me to be able to, you know, refer that, you know, it's just up on my bulletin board for, you know, for a year that I looked at every day. And so I always knew where they were. And um, and and it really just you know that was something also that when I think about like the books that I loved as a kid, um, and even as a not just as a as a kid but as an adult, things like Lord of the Rings and the Phantom Toll Booth and Kidnapped, all those books had maps. And I was one of those geeky kids that actually like followed the journey on the map, you know, to, to see where where Frodo was. And, yeah. you know, like where where is Mordor and where is Rohan and, and all of these things? I, you know, um, and so that was um, and that's just you know, this. I'm going to just you know, talk just for a second to Jonathan's book. That was when in Little Monarchs. I knew right off the bat I was going to love that book because when when I saw that he had the maps and then with the the latitude and longitude you know That's the you know the coordinates I'm like wow this guy's my you know this is my new best friend oh. <laughs> I love I love stuff like that. So I was uh, totally hooked,
1: yeah. Well, that's a, uh. that, that's a great segue, because that was actually going to be the next thing um, I asked. <laughs> and actually, Jonathan, you did, um, you did mention the, the coordinates and the compass headings um, in the book, but maybe if you could talk a little bit about, you know, how um, the book has these journal entries that Elby writes, and like you said, they the relocations with the, com- the compass headings. Um, yeah, can you, can you talk a little bit about, about those elements of the book?
2: Yeah, well, thank you, Mike. I'm glad you enjoyed that part. I'm likewise enjoying your book and all of the. I don't know. There's like a synchronicity. We both have uh, birds that do interesting things in our books. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's yeah, it's a good pairing. But I, I chose the to include the coordinates, and I was really adamant that we had to have them in there because it was really that was the start of it for me. It was like I'm going on this journey. I'm taking my characters along with me, sort of like imaginary friends, and we're going to populate these places and we're going to figure out what are the next steps together. Uh, so if we were at Hearst Castle, for example, which is a real location in uh, uh, the California coast, uh, you know, the question then was: okay, well, what room would they be in? Uh what how could I use Hearst Castle in interesting ways? It has a basement. Um, you know, certain species, uh, have survived in this sun shift scenario in the book, but most of them haven't. So are there any mammals left that could, you know, come out? Well, maybe nocturnal mammals, maybe mammals that could be down in the basement like bats. So I had to use the environments in creative ways, I guess, to fit the logic of the story, but everything kind of ended up informing, another piece as I went along. Um, but the the coordinates are just fun because uh, they allow readers one day if they wanted to, yeah, to just follow the, the exact steps of the characters, discover those places. There's hot springs, there's monarch groves, there's all this wonder out there. And part of what I'm doing with the book too is I'm trying to get people excited about preserving the monarch migration, uh, which is severely threatened right now. And um, I think that if you can engage kids and families around the idea of like, no, you can actually go there. You can actually be a part of this and see it and, you know, kind of put your hands into it (laughs) uh, and help if you want to. Um, I don't know. That's, that was compelling to me and hopefully it's compelling to readers too.
1: Well, you, you just float flew, flew right into my last question for you guys, Jonathan. I was going to ask, you know, what what do you hope readers take take away from both of your books? So you answered a little bit about the conservation and how you would, you know, like kids and adults to, you know, really try to preserve the monarchs. Um, is there anything else that you would like to, um, that you hope readers take away from the story?
2: Well, one of the things that was most impactful for me when researching the Monarchs was the, the cultural riches of the Monarchs migration story. So Monarchs are a part of the day of the dead and they're symbolic of, um, our loved ones who have died and often, often, often died too soon coming back and visiting us, uh, around November 1st. So I have uh, lost a son, so that's part of my family story. And I wasn't expecting that, of course, and I wasn't expecting that it would kind of feature into the book in a a roundabout way. I kind of found a way to keep my son's memory alive a little bit by um, putting a character into the book that kind of references him, his mannerisms, and that sort of thing. So the monarchs have... Kind of the spiritual power, and also it's informed by the science. So you need you kind of need both. You need the the wonder of the mystery and the and the cultural riches, and the science to kind of bring it alive for us as people. Because if you just talk about the science, you know, eventually that kind of gets dull. And if you just talk about the um, the cultural aspects, then you're missing out on the combination of the two and the combination is amazing because monarchs take multiple generations to complete their migration and nobody understands how they do it Mm -hmm. by the time they are in the north they all of a sudden feel the cold coming on they they say oh i've gotta gotta head home but how do they know where home is it's just been passed down no mommy or daddy monarch tells them they just they just know somehow so there's a sense of like eternal connection there that's powerful, and uh, yeah, I could go on about how incredible <laughs> they are. There's, there's more, but uh, I'll leave some for the book. But
1: yeah. Uh, well, thank, yeah, thank you for thank you for sharing that with us, um, Michael. We we haven't heard the end from Lark because this is actually a series, and we've got uh you know another book on deck. But what what do you hope readers take away from the story without giving too much away about what, what's going to happen next? Um. <laughs>
0: um, yeah. The, well, you know, on one level, I really hope that, you know, that it's it, that it, entertaining and, you know, and maybe that they've been inspired a little bit by Lark's persistence. I think that's kind of the, you know, when I started, um, you know, creating that character and um, and she, you know, like like Swallowtail Island, you know, she's kind of a, you know, composite of lots of other people, including, you know, a little bit of a little bit of me, a little bit of my wife and and lots of former students. I taught high school freshmen. Um, I taught at a girl's school in New York for you know, 16 years. And um, and so there were lots of their stories that kind of helped to kind of shape who she was. Um and I really that that persistence in her was really the the key thing that you know that she was going to keep going in a you know, again, I won't spoil the ending there, but through storms and across anything, she was going to do what she had to do to to get the the result that she wanted. And um and and so I think that's a big part of it. You know, she's a kid that's been, you know, she's been dealt some crummy cards, but you know, when I think that she learns about the real injustices in the world that others have faced, you know, that she's able to set her own problems aside and to, to deal with, you know, to, to solve a bigger problem, you know, the, uh, to see the bigger picture. And, you know, so I hope that, you know, they see something more in those experiences and help them, you know, help be more empathetic and sympathetic and, all of those kinds of things and even in the you know like in her case even the you know there's a is you know, a character that is very antagonistic toward her and um, but even there she she has an understanding of what you know she begins to understand why he is the way he is and so i think all of those things it just um, that's those are those are good lessons i think so yeah. you know hope to get some of that <laughs>
1: All right. Well, before before we end today, Jonathan, Michael, how would you like to sign our guest book? I guess, um, Michael, do you want to start?
0: Yeah, you know, I, I, I promise not to be too political, <laughs> but I was just going to say that, you know, with everything going on in the world of books and children's books, you know, with book banning and censorship and legislation that's, Intending, you know, criminalizing teachers and librarians for doing the jobs. I just want to say, look, not every book is for everybody. But on the other hand, nobody has a right to say that a book isn't for anybody. And, you know, I think that just crosses a line into a really scary place. Um, you know, I was a teacher for 20 years, and if there's two things I learned, one is that kids are a lot smarter than adults give them credit for. Um, they, they can figure things out for themselves, What you know, what is right and wrong. And, um, and the other is that, you know, the more you try to keep something from a kid... The more more they want it. So it's like, I think you do this at your own peril. That'd be my, how I would sign the book.
1: All right. And what about you, Jonathan? How would you like to sign our guest book today?
2: The world is ready for you. If you're a young person, if you're an old person who hasn't got out enough, the world is ready for you to come make part of it your own. So go have an adventure.
1: I like, I like both of those. So, Jonathan and Michael, thank you so much for joining me today on the Guestbook Podcast. We're looking forward to seeing and hearing more from both of you in the coming months. Thanks Thanks again. Thank you, Alison.
2: Thank you.